Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Esther's. We look at a conquering queen. Esther chapter 4. If, you're, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. There's some, hopefully, in the seats in front of you somewhere um, in uh, the basket underneath. Uh, but Esther is found close to the book of Psalms, which is kind of the middle of our Bible. So if you go a couple books back from Job, you'll find Esther. Esther chapter 4, and this again was a somewhat of a lengthy uh, reading, and so if you would bear with me, I don't want to read too fast, but I don't want to lag either, so. Chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She set for garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, our children's church is dismissed and also Crossroads.
And so as our kids are making their way, I'm sure uh, you saw the news this week about Queen Elizabeth. Uh, this was sad news for not only the UK, but I think for the whole world. She was an icon, symbolized, I think, a civil leadership that was benevolent, sought justice and fairness in the world. Uh, she was an emblem of grace and nobility that represented the British people. One of the fascinating things about her was how she came to the throne. Uh, she was born uh, with, no, with no path to the throne. Her uncle was uh, the heir apparent. And uh, when he refused and abdicated the throne because he wanted to marry a divorcee American woman, uh, he abdicated the throne to his brother, uh, which was, of course, Queen Elizabeth's father. And so at age 10, she discovered she was going to be queen eventually. And then began training for that, preparing for that. Uh, those who are old enough to know watched her maturity over the years. Uh, if not, if you've seen The Crown, I believe it's a somewhat faithful account of her maturing over the years. Uh, as she stepped more into this role and her father passed away at a relatively young age of lung cancer in 1920, 1962, and uh, she came to the throne at the age of 25, was coronated at 26, and had to step into that role, learn to grow in that role. And, um, and I think she always was a, a, a young woman of, of, of grace and well-spoken, but she really blossomed uh, as she felt the weight, literally the weight of the crown placed on her head, the weight of her role she stepped into that, and I think she did so nobly. Well, that's precisely what we are seeing here this morning in Esther 4. We're seeing a queen come into her own. It, and it's the, the, back, the backbone of this text is the word command. It's given four times. It's a unique and, and, and a rare word, and so it's striking that it appears four times in Esther. And particularly here in chapter 4, it appears more than that in Esther, but four times here in one chapter. Uh, and it begins with Mordecai issuing the command. You'll notice this in, in verse 8. He issues the command through a messenger uh, that Esther is to, is to, is to be shown the, the copy written of, uh, a copy of the written decree to destroy the Jews. He was to explain what it meant to her to, and then command her to go to the king and plead on behalf of her people. But you'll notice it ends with her giving the commands. Verse 16, I'll read it again. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Notice verse 17. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had commanded him. The roles have been reversed. As one commentator put it, she shows the resolution and self-possession of a true queen. 
Verse 16 reads like a battle plan, and she is clearly the general. Mordecai seems to recognize this reversal first of all. And so what she's learning and what she's been learning under the tutelage of Mordecai over the years is is learning how to discern which voices to follow. Another key word here uh, in our passage is not just command, but a closely related one, and that is law. It's used three times in our passage. The decree of the king in verse 3, that, that was went out to destroy the Jews. The law that Esther quotes, if, if anyone goes in with unwelcomed un, uh, or unbidden, there's one law, death, right? And then uh, she says it again, I will do it, though it is against the law. She is learning which authorities she will be loyal to when. She has been loyal to Mordecai this whole time. In chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 20, twice we're told that Esther did everything Mordecai commanded her. Same word. From childhood, she learned how to submit to authority. And this is important. One cannot be a good leader if one cannot submit to good authority. And so Esther has learned well under the tutelage of Mordecai, in submitting herself to Mordecai's good and generous leadership. And so she submitted to Mordecai, chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 20, repeats it, that she continued to submit. Though she's married now, and her loyalty supposedly transferred to her husband, she remains loyal to Mordecai and obeys everything he says. And in this case... He commands her to keep her ethnic identity under wraps, if you remember that. It's a dangerous place, obviously, as we learn in chapter 3. And so in chapter 4, she's continuing to follow Mordecai's instructions, but she's learning in this tension she's facing. There's this command, but Mordecai's giving me this command. And if I go against this command, there's real risks and real danger. I could lose my life. And as she goes through this crisis, she grows into a queen. She matures into her role. She begins to engage in wrestling with the different voices that are calling for her loyalty. She begins to employ her agency that God has given her. And that is maturity. You know, the one person I didn't name on the core team. There's a lot of others that I didn't name, but one of them that's significant to me is my son. I'm proud of of all my sons, but Luke's the first son who's out of my house. He's no longer under my direct tutelage. He's no longer under my authority. Um, And I'll be honest with you guys, when Luke graduated from high school and chose to go to USC, I thought, well, that'd be great. He can really help us with our college ministry. I was not a little disappointed that he visited other churches, though I was proud that he wanted to do that. And I thought, sure enough, he'll, he'll visit other churches and he'll say, yeah, Dad, none of them are as good as Riverside. <laughs> That's not true, and that didn't happen. Um, but you know, something even better happened. He went to City of Refuge and decided to follow the good leadership of J. Will. And I couldn't be prouder. I could not be prouder that he did that. He made that choice. 
And I bet that when Esther issued that command, Mordecai said, yes, ma'am. He walked away with a smile on his face. So would you pray with me that God would, we would hear God's voice and we would submit to it this morning. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for your word and I'm so grateful for these stories that you give us that engage our hearts and our imaginations, Lord, so that we can be well-formed in our own crises to engage and to grow. Lord, help us to hear your voice this morning and help us to discern the right authority to be loyal to, that we might grow as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 4, Esther is sort of pictured as cloistered and innocent. And we're, move, we're going to see a movement from cloistered innocence to commanding initiative. She is oblivious to what's happening. There's chaos in the city. The whole city, as we saw at the end of chapter 3, is in an uproar over this psychotic decree that the king has issued for the genocide of all Jews in the Persian Empire. And Susa, the city, is in an uproar. And we read at the very last verse, the very last sentence of chapter 3, is, is Haman and Xerxes sitting down in obliviousness, drinking wine, probably getting drunk, celebrating their great new law that's throwing the city in chaos. This is what bad leaders do, right? They, they bring chaos wherever they go, and they are oblivious to it. Well, in that same cloistered ivory tower is also Esther. And she does not know, despite the incredible communication systems in the empire that were famous, they know nothing inside the court of what's happening. And so what happens? Mordecai goes about publicly mourning. We see that in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. He does what was very common ancient Near Eastern practice to demonstrate that you are in grief. It was a form of self-humbling. It was a form of, of, of showing that you are, by literally putting dust on you, identifying with the dead, tearing off your clothes, putting on uncomfortable sackcloth, and then wailing and lamenting out loud. It was meant to be public. One of the pathologies of our modern age is that we do grief privately. But that has not been what humanity has done for the vast history of who we are. We have grieved publicly. We've invited others into our grief. We don't go into our private grief closets. And so Mordecai's grieving publicly. In fact, the word says he went into the public square can be rendered he paraded in his sackcloth and ashes. He wanted to be seen, not because it was a performance that he was faking his grief, but because grief is properly a public part of who we are. It is shaming, which is why we're tempted to go private. It's a shameful act to put on sackcloth and ashes. In the Greek version of the text, they put poop in their hair like they they made it like we're really going to humble ourselves as a way of saying we are dust and ashes and we are we are low we have shame we're carrying shame and fear and trauma and we're not hiding it right we're inviting we're inviting others to see especially God this is one of those places where God isn't mentioned but he's begged in our reading to appear who else does one perform lamenting for in grief? 
but to be seen by the Almighty, the only one who can do anything about our grief. To grieve in the presence of God before the face of God, as well as before the public face, to invite others to share that we might weep with those who weep. And he's doing it in particular. Here he enters the city of the, 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 the king's gate, and he's not allowed in in sackcloth. Because unlike the kingdom of God, the kingdom of men do not bear grief well. We, this is a happy place. You can only come with smiles. Even when Nehemiah, remember when Nehemiah was grieving the gates of, of Jerusalem, and he was crying, and the king was like, what is this? You're not sick. And it said, Nehemiah said, then I was very afraid. You, do not, you don't show a sad face in front of the king. Happy time only, right? It's like modern culture. We don't grieve. But so he's making this public and risky act to draw Esther's attention, so that Esther would see and know. Again, not as a performance, but that Esther might share in his grief, that she might grieve with him and he might grieve with her. And sure enough, it works. Messengers come and say, hey, Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate. And she's deeply distressed by this. It shocks her. She's shocked. What's happening? Like something massive has happened. So she sends a superficial solution. She sends clothes so he can enter the, the proper clothing to enter the king's gate. And he refuses them, which is a sign of deep grief. I'm not going to be so easily comforted. So then she sends Hathak. She commands Hathak to come out. Hathak comes out, finds out what's really going on. Before we can engage our agency in this world, we have to know what's going on. We have to be drawn out of our cloistered innocence. And we have to grieve the horror that is out there in the world, that's out there in the places where we're, where we're called to labor. That draws our hearts out and draws us into engagement. That's what Mordecai's doing with Esther. That's what God's doing with us. The more, one of the, one of, to give just one illustration of, a, of many at City of Refuge, as they went on prayer walks, it's not just about what they're doing for the community. As they're praying for different parts of Eau Claire, they're being drawn into some of the sadder, darker stories of Eau Claire that they did not know before. And they're heartbreaking. But that is God drawing the, us out to engage, to know, to grieve. When the Apostle Paul went to Athens and saw all the idols, he didn't, on the one hand, wink at them and go, I see, you're, that's, that's great. You guys are really spiritual. That's awesome. Nor did he, nor did he despise them. Look at these idiots. What did he do? He grieved. He grieved the evil that, has bef that befell Athens, that plagued them. He saw and he grieved. And that's what's important for us to do, this, to do the same. Mordecai is calling her to employ the considerable agency she has queen through his provocations. And he communicates to her the details of not only what's happening, he gives her a copy of the decree. He has, because Mordecai apparently is a connected guy. He has insider information about Esther in chapter 2. He uncovers the assassination plot in chapter 2. And he knows even the price that Haman paid 
for the assassination of all the Jews, for the extermination of the Jews. He knew that down to the, to the penny, and he says it to her. Why would he communicate that bit of information? Because it's horrific. For 10,000 talents of silver, I want them all dead. It's horrific. And he's drawing Esther into the crisis that she is right now oblivious to, out of her privileged place so she can use her privilege to serve the most needy. And it's not just, it's not just dangerous to them. Esther seems a little bit frustrated in her response in verse 11 with Mordecai's big ask. Look at what she says in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death. Notice how she puts it. All the king's servants and everyone. Like, everybody knows this. Do you realize that you're asking me to do certain suicide? Like, you're asking me certain death. Do you know what you're asking of me? And this, you know, uh, the ancient historian Herodotus noted that this was a policy of the Persian courts. You were not allowed to come unsummoned. Um, Josephus paints the picture of Artaxerxes' court that it was surrounded by men with axes who would carve you up if you came in and were perceived as to be a threat. I mean, it's a scary place, right? And so a lot of people kind of paint Esther here as she's already been so tainted by privilege that she's just sort of... Sort of like, ah, oh, it's too hard. You know, like, uh, so you guys know this. I've shared this before. I spent two years at, an, at a Jewish camp. I was the only Gentile and the only Christian that I know of. Uh, I sadly did not represent either well uh, to that crowd. Uh, but there was a racial slur they would use. Uh, I guess it's a racial slur. I don't know. Uh, they, they would, the, the boys would refer to some of the more prissy girls as Japs. You've heard of this? Jewish American princess. Uh, well, I will say this about Jewish American princesses. I also worked at an all-girls camp in college, and I'll say this, that uh, Jewish American princesses are not any different than the other American princesses. <laughs> um, but some people have that picture of Esther. She's this Jewish princess who's like, that's not my problem. You know, like just totally pushing off Mordecai's please, right? But she, I mean, remember, when she saw Mordecai in grief, she was shocked. She's not unmoved. She's not indifferent. She, what she's doing is she's counting the costs. She's seeing and she's afraid, and that's good. You've heard it said, courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is acting even though you're afraid. And so she's counting the costs. She's coming into the crisis. Mordecai is putting right in front of her face. And she's called to act and respond. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you know what this is going to cost me? And Mordecai's response is like, yeah, yeah, but if you don't take this risk, don't think you're going to survive. Don't think, there is a psychopath in your court, and don't think, I mean, they're using all these couriers to communicate about, about them. This isn't a well-kept secret that she's a Jewish woman. I mean, Xerxes may be clueless, as he typically is, but that information is going to get out. And he's like, don't think you're going to play it safe in the ivory tower. You will not be safe here. You are called into the crisis, sister, and you've got to step up and engage. You've got to risk. And that's how she's coming into her own. 
That's how it's true for all of us. When we face crisis, guys, look what James says, not me, (laughs) the the inspired James. James chapter 1, the half-brother of Christ, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect if you let it. That you may be perfect, or, or better, you may be mature and complete. So whatever crisis you're facing or you're in the thick of right now, brother, sister, know this. God is deeply at work forming you to make you mature, grounded, steadfast. So rejoice that the Father gives you such attention because he is committed to completing the work he's begun in you. He is not going to stop. He's going to bring that crisis like Mordecai. He's going to draw you in so that we can, arise to, we can rise to the occasion by his grace. And Esther begins, you see her growth. In, in verse 5, she commands Hathik. In, chapter, in verse 8, he, Mordecai issues a command through Hathik. In, chapter, in verse 10, she issues another command to Hathik. She's already acting the parts of a queen as she's taking charge of those under her. And then in verse 17, of course, she issues the charge that Mordecai follows. We see her slowly growing in chapter 4, stepping up. And that's that's what leadership is. Leadership is not the exercise of raw power. That's tyranny. Leadership, I've, I've often defined leadership this way. It is love taking the initiative to meet a need in others that will be costly to yourself. It is love taking the initiative to meet a real perceived need in others that will be costly to you. It may cost you financially and resource-wise. It may cost you your energy. It may cost you our most precious commodity, your time. But that's leadership. Leadership is always simultaneously using power and being vulnerable, risking potential suffering in wielding that power. And that's what she's doing. She's entering into an extremely high-risk environment to wield the authority she has, this leverage she has, at great cost to herself. And of course, when we hear this, we can't help but think of the great leaders that we look up to. Who who among us doesn't have a hero leader that didn't, sacrifice greatly in their leadership. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. The equipping hour class that we're talking about, I'm so excited for this class. I thought uh, Dr. Wolfer did an incredible job this morning. All of them are led by, by experts in their field that have learned this lesson. They have faced crises in their profession and they have stepped up in the moment. Not to say they've never faltered, but they've stepped up, and as a result, they've earned leadership. They've earned respect, because they've risked, they've, they've taken on costs to themselves in wielding that power. And of course, who among us as Christians can't help but think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? On the screen is one of my favorite passages of the whole scripture, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you already know this. You already know this. Just live into it. 
who though he was in the form of God, he was in the ivory tower, so to speak, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to hold on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, the most shameful of deaths. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. This is our paradigm as we step into the crises around us, taking risks for the good of others is good leadership. All right, finally, she's moving from real fear to risking faith. From a very real fear that she's had to face and count the cost to now she is acting in faith, take, actually taking that risk. And I love Mordecai's answer when he says, you know, don't think, don't think you'll survive if you, if you neglect this challenge. Don't think you'll escape. And even if you don't do it, from somewhere else will arise relief for the Jews. That is as close as you're going to get to a statement of faith in the book of Esther. Right? It's passive. God's left out, but it's clearly read into it. God will save his people. If you think about it, that's remarkable faith for a man who's facing genocide. God will rescue us. There's no question. The question is whether or not he's going to use you, Esther. He will redeem. It reminds me of that song um, that Derek Webb and Sandra McCracken did, Mercy Speaks by Jesus' Blood. Jesus' blood speaks loud and sweet. Here all deity can meet. And without a jarring voice, welcome Zion to rejoice. All her debts were cast on me, and she must and shall go free. She must and shall go free. This is the confidence Mordecai has. Israel must and shall be redeemed. Do you have that faith? That Christ has carried all of your debts, you must and shall go free. That all of God's people, there are people in Eau Claire who aren't God's people yet, but they must be and they shall be. That's faith. But then I love what he says next. He says, who knows, in verse 14, the second half of 14, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think the who knows there question is, is a genuine one. I don't think he's saying, who knows, we really know. He's saying, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have been raised to this. There's a humility here. Mordecai's not acting as a prophet who sort of sees all and knows all. He's literally asking, who knows? This is a, almost a stock phrase in the Old Testament. This who knows. You might remember it uh, when, when David uh, is told that his, his firstborn son with Bathsheba will, will die. What does he do? He does what Mordecai is doing. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He mourns, laments, and cries out. For who to hear? God. That God might relent. But then the servants come in and tell them the bad news. Your son is dead. 
And here on the screen, you'll see the response. David gets up, cleans himself up, sits down and eats. And it throws his servants. They said to him, what is this thing you've done? You fasted and wept while the child was still alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. You got this reversed, David. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe not. Likewise, in the book of Jonah, you see a similar, when, when Jonah preaches, the king issues a decree in Nineveh, and he calls for this citywide sackcloth, ashes, fasting, same thing. Even the animals put on sackcloth. I'm not sure how that worked. <laughs> but he calls them to fast and repent, and he says, who knows? The Lord may relent from the disaster he's threatened against us. And in that case, God does relent. Joel the prophet does the same thing. Who knows? The Lord may relent. This is an important piece here because I think so often there is a certainty to our faith. We have a hope that is sure. It is an anchor to the soul that keeps us in every storm. The sure hope of our redemption that we shall and must go free. That is sure and unquestioned. But so often we take that certainty and falsely, I think, project it onto other events in our lives. Like, I know the Lord is going to heal me from this disease. My answer is, who knows? Maybe. Right? Maybe. I know the Lord is going to give me this job. He gave me a sign. I know it. Maybe. Who knows? I know God is going to get me out of this tough spot I'm in and bring me to this 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 particular place I'm looking for. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in your work. Maybe, maybe it's in your private life. But the answer is, who knows? Who knows? We know God will bring ultimate relief. He know he will bring ultimate salvation. And we know that he's at work in all of these things to mold us. That we know. But how will this thing resolve the conflict you're currently in? Who knows? God alone. And I think that's an important humility <laughs> to have as we face these hard things. And Esther's response is also profound. In verse 16, she responds to Esther's challenge. Who knows, maybe for this very thing you've been brought to this position in the kingdom. She steps up to that challenge, not knowing whether or not indeed it is. She knows very well I might step into the king's court and game over for me. But that's what faith does. It risks. It risks loss for the good of others. Right? And so... What does she do? First, she seeks intercession. She says, fast for me. Get all the Jews together and have them fast on my behalf. Again, very coded, non-explicit reference to intercede for God, to God for me. Pray for me, because I cannot do this by myself. She's counted the costs, and she knows her inadequacy. So this is not a, an arrogant queen stepping into this role. This is a woman who's humbled by reality. She's grieved. And she's seeking God's help. And she's asking for help from Mordecai and from all the Jews in the city. We gotta help Esther. We gotta fast. It's a rigorous fast. Three days, three nights, no food, no drink. 
to call out to God. The second thing she does is she, she resigns herself to whatever the results may be. She's still going to act irrespective of the results. Look what she says. If I perish, I perish. <laughs> Who knows? I might perish. The wording there is remarkable. It's very similar. Jews have long noted in their reading of Esther uh, parallels between Esther and the story of Joseph in Genesis. There's a lot of parallels. You've already seen some of them. You'll see more maybe as we go. But one of them is here. You might remember when Joseph is now made it up to the, 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 the premier of Egypt. He's second in command next to the Pharaoh. He encounters his brothers during the famine and he's sort, of, he's sort of testing him to see whether they're the same scoundrels they used to be. And he says, I'm going to keep your brother here, um, Judah, and then you need to bring Benjamin. I'll release Judah when you bring Benjamin. Benjamin was his favorite, his blood brother, his full brother. Said, I want Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was daddy's favorite after Joseph was presumed dead. And so Jacob struggled with this. Like, I don't want to release my Benjamin. I've already lost one son. And... Um, as they kind of explain the situation to him, Jacob does a similar thing. He counts the costs, and then he consigns his fate to God. And he says this. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before this man, not knowing it's Joseph. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It's the same construction in the Hebrew. If I am bereaved, if I suffer the loss of another son, then I suffer that loss. Who knows? It's also very similar to another story in, in some of the exile books of the Bible, the book of Daniel. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or you remember the Sunday school song about it? They refused, like Mordecai, to pay homage idolatrously, to bow down to the king's image. And so they were, because they broke the king's inviolable law, they were going to be thrown into the furnace. And do you remember their response to the king? It's very respectful, but very bold. They knew where their loyalties were. They said, King, our God is able to save us, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you. <laughs> I love that. Our God can save us. I believe he will. But even if he doesn't, I will not, I will not break my loyalty to the, my Lord. God is calling us to these kinds of risks. And it's not a risk God himself hasn't taken. Jesus, in the course of of this salvation Mordecai prophesied, relief shall come for the Jews, a final redemption. Jesus risked it all, and friends, he lost it all. He lost everything. He lost his disciples, he lost his friends, he lost the respect of the community. They went from chanting his praises to chanting his death. He lost it all, including his life. But because he lost it all, and then he secured it, 
in his conquering our sin. And he, he didn't remain in this proverbial ivory tower. He took on our sorrows. He took on our skin and our bones. He cried our tears. He carried our filth, our disease, our shame. Because he lost it all in carrying it all and secured it in conquering it all through the resurrection, our salvation in him is certain. He has paid your debt. You must and shall go free. And our sure hope in this life will call us to take costly risks. And you will lose some of those risks. You will, some of you will be bereaved. Some of you will perish. But in suffering loss, whatever it looks like, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself and you shall be free. We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul said, knowing that suffering, however it ends, produces endurance and endurance produces real character in us. And the character in our hardship yields a hope, a hope that does not disappoint us. How do we know that? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Would you pray with me to invite the love of God's, God's love into our hearts? Heavenly Father, we are, some of us are coming out of a crisis. Many of us are in the thick of a crisis. Some of us are at the beginning of one. Lord, we invite you now, O Holy Spirit, to pour your, the love of the Father into our orphaned hearts as ones who are now adopted, that we might know and taste your love in our crisis, that we might have a hope that is steadied and mature, that an endurance might develop in us the character of Jesus himself, that we might, Lord, be ready for the occasion when it comes to take a risk for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.